Hi there, welcome to episode 28 of Paranormal Blip, and tonight's uh, episode <laughs> is all about Phoenix Lights, which is a fascinating case, absolutely amazing to go into it, and uh, we've also got a very juicy archive of conversation between Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna, which is very interesting. But um, first of all, thanks ever so much for your amazing response to episode 27 of Anna Syndrome incredible response in the first 24 hours or so so thank you very much for that and for everyone that's got in contact as well about the show so uh yeah we're going to go uh, into the news now here's the blumps so the news this week is a slightly different because i'm just uh, been thinking about uh, what's you know been trailed for the last couple of weeks now as upcoming um, hearings at the Senate. And I don't know what's going to happen publicly, but it looks like, you know, Ross Coulthard and George Knapp and a few other people have spoken about recently, in the last week or so, or a couple of weeks, that, you know, that we have now, or US senators at least, or Congress people, have now... Uh, contact with guys that they are wanting to whistleblow and they're getting the language in place for that to happen now whether that happens in the next couple of weeks or months you know it depends on the bills being passed and it being signed off and it being kind of legally secure for whistleblowers to come forward but you know kind of reading essentially what people are telling me or listening to what people are telling us all it looks very certain that um, senators and Congress people have got contact with people that have said, yeah, I'll tell you everything, pal, but I need to be legally secure in making sure that I can uh, speak to you about this. Now, all of that is going to be classified. It'd be very interesting to see what happens in the public realm you know, around this. But it's extraordinary. I mean, if they have li lined up people that know where the bodies are buried to, you know, as a kind of metaphor, you know, to know where the kind of um, skeletons are in their cupboards is another metaphor. Uh, that's, that's absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary kind of moment in this remarkable story. So that's a bit of a, uh, you know, something to look forward to. No big breakthrough this week in terms of news, or well, the last couple of days anyway, because I only put the other one up a few days ago, didn't I? Yeah. But um, now we're going to go to the Blomps and then Phoenix Lights. So the Phoenix Lights has got a, you know, internationally recognised reputation around it. One of the strongest UFO uh, cases of the last couple of millennia, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, massive amounts of evidence, video evidence, which I've linked to the in the episode description and lots and lots and lots of testimony. So also in the episode description is a map of the um, kind of flight path, um, which you may want to refer to when listening to this or refer to whenever you like. Refer to the next time you go into the shops. It's like a Google Maps. <laughs> it's a Google Maps um, map created by a user. I don't know, it doesn't say who created it. But nevertheless, it's quite, it seems to be quite um, accurate. 
So it goes from, it, it only lists a couple of sightings, you know, nine sightings out of the thousands, you know. But um, nevertheless, it may be something that you want to refer to. But I'm going to begin this section here with um, the preliminary report by the NUFORC, the National UFO Reporting Committee. Is that what they're called? Something like that. Reporting Center, maybe? Something like that. And um, they made this in August 1997, August the 13th, actually, 1997, which is exactly uh, five years, after, sorry, five months after the event. So I'm going to read extracts of this report, which is also linked in the episode description. You see the pattern here? Yes. So this is how it begins. The first call received over the UFO hotline was from a former police officer who called to report that he and his family had just witnessed a bizarre cluster of red lights moving very rapidly across the night sky in the vicinity of Paulden, Arizona, approximately 30 miles northwest of Prescott, sorry, north of Prescott, Arizona, at about 8.16 p.m. local time on Thursday night, March the 13th, 1997. The man who called, uh, the man who called a rational, sober-minded and eloquent-sounding person, described having witnessed with his family a very strange cluster of distinctly red-orange lights, which consisted of four to five red lights in the lead, followed by a single light which appeared to be standing back from the others. The lights in the lead gave the impression of being in a V formation, somewhat like a wedge or boomerang in shape. That was the first of many dozen calls that were received over the subsequent two days. Subsequent calls then started pouring in to the hotline, from locations to the south of Paulden, Arizona. The next calls received were from the vicinities of Prescott and Prescott Valley, approximately 50 miles north of Phoenix. Several individuals called from that vicinity to recount that, approximate, that approximately 8.17 p.m. they witnessed four or five very bright white lights pass overhead. Several of the observers reported the, uh, that the object appeared to be triangular in shape, with a somewhat complex grouping of lights along its sides. One of the observers in Prescott reported that the orientation of the distinctly white lights appeared to change while she and her family were observing the object. However, the lights formed a distinctly triangular pattern in the sky. Another observer was standing outside with his wife and sons in Prescott Valley when they noticed that a cluster of lights into the west of the uh, to the west-northwest of the position. The lights formed a triangular pattern, but all of them appeared to be red, with the exception of the light at the nose of the object, which was distinctly white. The object or objects, which had been observed for approximately two to three minutes with binoculars, then passed directly overhead the, the observers. They were then seen to bank to the right, and they then disappeared into the night sky to the southwest, sorry, the southeast, of Prescott Valley. Uh, even though the night was very quiet, none of the observers described above heard any sound emanate from the object. All of them emphasized that the object glided through the sky and made absolutely no noise whatsoever. All of the observers volunteered during their conversations, uh, sorry, during their telephone reports, that they had strained their ears trying to hear some sound from the object, but none was heard, which contributed to the eerie nature of the sighting. 
Interesting. The next sighting was reported from Dewey, Arizona, located approximately 10 miles to the south of Prescott. Five adults and youths were driving north on Highway 69 to an appointment in Prescott when they witnessed a very large cluster of lights which formed a V-shape in the sky. The driver pulled off the road into a grocery store parking lot. All the occupants got out the car in order to get a better look at the object. By the time the object was directly above them, where it appeared to hover for several minutes. The member of this group who called the hotline reported that the object was so large that if he clenched his fist and held it at arm's length, he could not cover the size of the object with his fist. In addition, he reported that based on his flying experience, he estimated that the object was not over a thousand feet above the ground. He emphasized that there was absolutely no sound emanating from the object. It was absolutely silent and it was moving at a very slow pace, considerably slower, for example, than a light aircraft would have been seen to move at that assumed altitude. He added that he could see a small private aircraft in the vicinity of the object overhead and that the aircraft appeared to be heading in the direction of the Prescott Airport. More about this aircraft is described below in the description of the alleged interception of the strange object by F-15Cs farther to the south. One particularly noteworthy aspect of, the, of this reporter's report, observer's report is that he called both Prescott Airport and Luke Air Force Base to report the sighting. The female operator Luke Air Force Base volunteered to him that the switchboard had been deluged with reports about the strange object. Later statements from Luke Air Force Base alleged that they had received no calls about the object. The next calls received were from Chino Valley, Tempe, Glendale, Phoenix, Kingman and Tuscan. Many people call from these areas, blah, blah, blah. Goes on and on. That kind of, you get that, you get the gist, right? You get the gist. These people are, <laughs> these people are reporting the Phoenix Lights. That's what they're doing. Okay. That's what this episode is about. Right. But look, get this right. Uh, another interesting report submitted by a young mother who stood outside her home located in Phoenix approximately one mile south of Camelback Mountain. So all my listeners... Oh, I do have a listener in Russia, by the way. In the last episode, Havana Syndrome, I was wondering, do I have a listener in Russia? Well, I do have a listener in Russia, at least one. So I do apologize for not noticing your presence. So thank you very much for listening. And, you know, I hope you're okay there. I mean, I wouldn't like to live in Russia because it sounds like... a bloody nightmare living in Russia. No wonder you listen to this, you know. Get a bit of the old air down your blouse. <laughs> anyway, um, if you are from, who is it? EDF? Is that the Russian? <laughs> oh, no, that's an energy company. Whatever they, whatever the KGB are called these days. Oh, oh I'm not going to go to Russia. I couldn't care less. But, but, oh, no, hold on a minute. They can come to Britain. And, oh, jeez. Anyway, sort yourself out. For God's sake, come on. Be nice to people. It's not that difficult. Right, there's my plea to, for Russia to sort itself out. Now let's go back to the, what I'm reading out. That, By the way, that's not enough. 
all of that stuff the last five minutes isn't in the report about Russia. But listen, thank you ever so much for my uh, audience in Russia and the, all of the guys in Estonia. I can't remember all of the other countries, but loads of places around, like, you know, the former Eastern Bloc countries, quite a lot of them listen uh, to this podcast. So that's good, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, right. So anyway, yeah. yeah so, this, so south of Camelback Mountain, and she watched the object with her five children for five minutes. She reported the object was directly overhead her house. It was larger than her clenched fist when held at arm's length. So she did this thing as well, this weird thing. I didn't know that that was a thing that you do. If you see a big unidentified flying object or unidentified phenomena aerially displaying in front of you, you know, back in the day in 1997, what you would do in Arizona at least is like clench your fist up into the air like you're doing a black uh, power salute and, um, you know, beautiful. That's what you, so that's the measurement. I didn't know that. Isn't that, that crazy that two people do the same way of measuring this thing? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Anyway, it goes on. There's various, various reports. And then it goes, they then say it can't be an aircraft, a balloon, or a comet for one reason or another. And then it talks about, uh, this is quite interesting, um, hours after the bulk of the reports that have been received at the US, at the hotline headquarters, we, which I imagine a you know kind of oak panelled uh, study with a big red uh, telephone in on the desk, you know, and somebody constantly phoning this telephone, <laughs> saying that they've seen. So anyway, hours after that, we received a lengthy telephone call from one or more parties who claimed to have been personal witnesses to a scramble of F-15C fighters, which allegedly had intercepted the object over downtown Phoenix. So that's interesting. And then what they did then after that is that two years later, they then did another one. This is the uh, NUFORC the reporting center for UFOs nationally. And um, so this came out on the two-year anniversary, March 13th, 1999. This is posted as well, obviously, on my in the episode description. So this is quite, because what this does is that this, and if you're looking at the map and you see the first sighting is in Nevada, and you think, what the hell, you're conning me out of the Nevada sighting, bye. Well, I'm not conning you out of the Nevada sighting because it wasn't known at the time, um, or at least it wasn't reported to NUFORC until a bit later. So let's go to this one. This is posted in the episode description. Uh, Saturday, March the 13th, 1999, marks the second anniversary of the dramatic UFO sighting event that occurred two years ago over both the states of Nevada and Arizona, an event generally referred to as the Phoenix Lights case. One unconfirmed sighting report was received from the state of New Mexico as well. So that isn't on the on the map, um, you know, the kind of uh, sighting map, the, the, the Google Maps that somebody made. That New Mexico sighting isn't on there. Uh, so it'd be interesting if, uh, you know, more people come forward uh, there as well. So many aspects of the case still remain unexplained and controversial. 
but a considerable body of data and evidence has been collected by uh, many capable investigators, which suggests the event was extraordinarily dramatic and bizarre. Moreover, it went virtually unreported in the press, save for a handful of short articles printed in local Arizona newspapers. The final story broke with a major front-page article in USA Today on Wednesday, June 18, 1997, some three months after the incident had occurred. Some of the salient features are described below, and so they've got like an eight-point, um, you know, kind of feature saliency. Uh, number one, perhaps thousands or tens of thousands of witnesses on the ground witnessed at least one object pass and or hover overhead what they described as being a huge, gigantic, or unimaginably large. Many of the witnesses reported they had the impression that a Boeing 747 could land on the back of the object they just witnessed pass overhead their location. Two, most witnesses described the object as being generally triangular in shape, with anywhere from five to many innumerable lights on the leading edge of the object. Some observers reported that the pattern of lights consisted of three lights clustered near the nose of the object, with one light on each of the trailing tips of the triangle. One individual reported an object that appeared to have seven large lights equally spaced out along its leaving its leading edge. The object that's interesting. Only they say only one. Oh, sorry, other individuals. Yeah, I was going to say that was my uh, mistake there. Other individuals reported the seven lights because that's certainly you know when I think of the Phoenix lights, that's what I what I imagine. You know, the object apparently was capable of. This is number three, by the way. The object apparently was capable of very rapid flight, probably even supersonic flight, although few witnesses reported any sound emanating from it. The object was reportedly heading generally to the southeast over Henderson, Nevada at 1855 hours and was next reported uh, heading in the south from the vicinity of Paulden, Arizona, approximately 22 minutes later at 2017 hours. So they're different... Um, uh, time zones 1855 is pacific in nevada and uh arizona is mountain time so that's why it jumps to 2017 but it's only 22 minutes later uh within approximately one minute of the sighting in polden the object was reported in the vicinity of prescott blah 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 we know all this now this is interesting the object passed through the airspace of sky harbor airport where it was witnessed by air traffic controllers in the airport tower and where it was also reported via radio by at least one commercial flight crew. They reported via radio that the object was passing directly overhead their aircraft, which was on the ground preparing to depart Sky Harbour. The object reportedly did not appear on radar and did not communicate either via radio or transponder. And then we see then point five is just continuing the uh, the journey that it took and then point six is about this uh, speculation that two fighter jets were sent up um so this so then, then they've got this um very interesting uh, intercept this transcript i should say uh of the call they don't they haven't got the audio of the call but they've got a kind of typed out um transcript of the call and so this is uh extracts from the caller um so I, I just got off shift 30 minutes ago um there's red red alert at luke air force base 
which is the F-15s, two F-15s that we keep on ready alert. Oh, sorry, ready alert. <laughs> They're part of the Air Force One and Air Force Two protection group to protect them when they come west of the Rockies, whenever the president or any dignitaries is on board. They were launched because all hell broke loose, basically. Apparently, we got a call from Prescott Valley Airport, a small airport north of us, sorry, northwest, and reporting an object that, that had a near miss with a Cessna, a small aircraft. The call came up, um, ready alert, approximately 8.32, from my understanding, that they encountered something over the sky of Phoenix, Arizona, over the area of 7th Avenue and Indian School Road. They don't know what it was. The description that the pilot, one of the pilots stated that they had a visual on it. They've got gun camera film of it. They have no radar tape of it. It scared the hell out of them. I've never seen this. And then they named the person. I'm talking about he, he's a command pilot of this particular flight. He'll never talk to you. He's a real professional. I've never seen this man. Or I've never seen this man scared. Are you familiar with the term white noise, blanking out radar? My understanding is that's what they got, was strictly white noise. His statement was that they followed the aircraft. It went on a straight line course heading towards Vector Sky Harbour Airport, which is one of the main airports here, and it entered the pattern, Sky Harbour Airport, crossed the pattern of the outboard runways. The outboard runways at that time, the wind was coming in from the west. They encountered, going in, originally two 737s, a DC-10, taken off of Sky, from Sky Harbour, they have an American West Hub, hub out here, so we've got a lot of civilian flights. They, this aircraft stay in, um, uh, his understanding was that it was approximately 18,000 feet, descending to 10,005. When it got to Angels 10, 10,005, it completely went dark. He doesn't know if it was one aircraft or several aircraft. He saw five distinct lights in a triangular pattern. First three lights were in a tight triangular formation. One of the rear lights was at starboard at about, he said it was about 200 yards, and then the other lights was about 400 yards, also on the east side of the triangle, if you will. His belief is that this might have been more than one aircraft. He could not describe the aircraft. He could not say that there were lights. There were no strobe lights. It was a, a light, he said, as bright as a star, not like the North Star. Right now, Mars and Jupiter are very bright in the sky, but this was not very bright, and uh, they dimmed. And when they dimmed, he realized landing lights generally do not have that capability. Then they went, and they dimmed in unison. Upon after dimming, they went completely dark. The aircraft then passed into the pattern. They came back up, followed the straight line of 7th Avenue, which like cuts right through Phoenix. Which like cuts right through Phoenix. And then it goes on to say, uh, they kept going. They turned, they came back. On, just as they passed a mountain called South Mountain. He was scared to death. He's not sure what it was. After they landed, the base was, we had a complete lockdown. The vicinity, the facility was closed. End transcript. Um, then they, point seven is that Luke Air Force Base denied that they knew anything about it. Point eight, some military personnel and UFO investigators asserted the, the entire event was caused by military flares. Um, the, uh, that had been released at approximately 21.30 hours mountain time by a flight of 
A-10 aircraft um, at the Gila Bend bombing range. But they say even if that did happen, it was 45 minutes after the UFO sightings had already occurred in Arizona. So, you know, that's not, uh, that's, <laughs> it's got nothing new with it. Uh, number nine, the witnesses who reported their sightings of the object over northern Arizona and Phoenix include architects, physicians, law enforcement officers, educators, airline pilots, attorneys, uh, real estate brokers, and other seemingly reliable citizens. Many are qualified observers and reported their sightings in eloquent written form. Now, that's interesting, number nine, because that's a sign of the times, isn't it, in 1999. Um, Oh, there's Prince. He did a song about 1999, didn't he? And he did a song about Side of the Times. But that's all to do with the, you know, these aren't just kind of drunks in the park. These are reliable people. So that's to do with the stigma of kind of coming forward. And it makes you wonder, you know, how many um, people are out there who did see it, who are not interested in coming forward for whatever reason at all. I mean, I was speaking to... Uh, a friend of mine who was saying, oh yeah, he knows plenty of people that have seen UFOs. And it's not necessarily that they are hit by some kind of stigma or embarrassment, but it's just a personal thing to them, which I'd never really kind of seen that uh, or thought about that. Um, kind of should have known really, didn't I? But anyway, one guy that did come forward is Kurt Russell. So here is Kurt Russell. You guys saw a UFO, true? Oh, you're talking about, yeah. Um, yeah, it is In true. a plane, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Goldie, Goldie had an experience. I, I, she wrote about it in her book. It's, it, it, but anyway, so she's, she's not just a firm believer. She had an experience. So one time, Oliver, I was flying. I was, it was in a, in a time where I was <laughs> kind of like I, I just a couple of years earlier learned to fly. So I was still at a period in my life where any excuse to fly would do. He wanted to go to Phoenix to see a friend. And I said, sure, I'll fly. There. Oh, really? OK. <laughs> so we flew to we were My dad Phoenix. wouldn't drive yeah, me over right. the wall, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, bowling, that was it. <laughs> so we're going into Phoenix, and uh, we're, I think it was Sky Harbor. And uh, there's these bank of lights, six lights, uh, in the shape of a triangle going back right over the airport. And I'm looking at them as I'm coming in. I'm you know, on, the, on the horn talking to them, and I'm coming in. And I, I'm not saying anything about it because I'm kind of confused by it, but it, I can't tell if this is going to be an issue or not with landing. And Oliver said, uh, hey, Pa, what are those lights? And, it was, and I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they are. And so anyway, I called up the tower and I said, what are you guys painting tonight over the, over the airport? And they said, we're not showing anything. What, what are you seeing? I said, well, there's six lights in a row. And they said, do you want to report this? And I said, I Look, I, I can't identify it. It's flying and it's six objects. <laughs> so that's what it is, right? So we landed. I dropped him off, flew home. Years later, I come, I come home and Goldie's watching this show on UFOs. And the most reported one of all time was this one in Phoenix. And I'm watching, I start to see this show and I said, wait a minute. That's the night Ollie and I were landing in Phoenix. I remember that. And I had, I, I said, wait a minute, I've got it in my, in my logbook. So I went to my logbook and I, I didn't mention anything about the, the reporting the UFO, but my, but my light, my flight was logged. So I said, yeah. And, and on the show, they talked about 20,000 people reporting it and only one 
um, general aviation pilot. And I said, that's, that's me. <laughs> right? so, so the weirdest part of that to me, though, was I'd never thought about it from the time I landed until <gasps> I saw that TV show. And when I saw Oliver the next day, he hadn't either. Really? I thought that was kind of bizarre. So there's Kurt Russell. And one of the other people to mention in this story is, of course, Fife. Fife. Call me Fife. Fife Symington. Fife Symington was the governor of Arizona at the time, and he saw the lights. But um, put in under this pressure of not knowing what to do about it, he very controversially made a joke out of it a couple of days later, where he uh, kind of called an urgent press conference, and he had his uh, press secretary dress up in an alien costume and um, said, you know, you guys need to get a sense of humor to the uh, press pack. Um, and then years later, he actually confessed to CNN. Well, actually, I kind of messed up there big time because I saw it. So this is the CNN clip of Fife calling uh why, why would you call your child fife not sure it's quite a good name isn't it but i think it should be spelt with a y to go with symington which has got a y in it anyway here's fife speaking to cnn fife symington is now a businessman he was the republican governor of arizona for six years elected when the first george bush was president now, a decade after leaving the state house, he takes me to a Phoenix park and discloses something unlike anything uttered by any other high-level U.S. politician. If you if you had been here ten years ago and standing out here and looking up there at the um, at the lights and the view, um, you would have been astounded. You would have been amazed. Governor Symington is referring to what is now known as the Phoenix Lights, an object videotaped by many and seen by thousands over several nights in the Arizona sky in 1997. Major sighting here. It was described by witnesses as larger than a football field and silent. It was a giant V, all right? Uh -huh. And the right side of the V went over us. The left side was like a couple blocks over it. You just didn't know what to do, you know? It was just like, my God, how big is this thing? The great state of Arizona, Fife Symington. The former governor, a Vietnam Air Force veteran, had never publicly acknowledged seeing it until now. And I suspect that uh, unless uh, uh, the Defense Department proves us otherwise, that it was probably uh, some form of an alien spacecraft. So why didn't he say anything then? Partly, he says, because he didn't want people to panic. I think as a public figure, you have to be very careful about what you say because uh, people can have pretty uh, emotional reactions. And, and, uh, and I said my goal wasn't to try to stir the pot. And he went to humorous and controversial lengths not to stir the pot. He held a news conference after the Phoenix Lights to announce the mystery had been solved. And now I'll ask Officer Stein and his colleagues to escort the accused into the room so that we may all look upon the guilty party. Don't get him too close to me, please. In the alien costume, the governor's chief of staff. And this just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. UFO enthusiasts were not amused, especially since the governor was believed to have seen nothing. But now he's coming out. The lights were really brilliant, uh, and it was just fascinating. It, I mean, it was, it was enormous. It just felt otherworldly. You know, you're, in your gut, you could just tell it was otherworldly. 
Symington will be talking about this in an updated film about UFOs called Out of the Blue. He has also talked with an organization that wants UFO information more out in the open. It's very significant that someone of the stature of a governor would come out and say that they acknowledge that they experienced uh, a UFO um, because it brings a lot of credibility and strength to the case. Governor Simonton says he did tell his family, friends and staff about what he saw early on. I still behind the scenes uh, tried to investigate it, but I got nowhere. So what were the Phoenix Lights? Well, frankly, we don't know. What we do know is that it's as much of a mystery today as it was a decade ago. So what's going on here then? Well, I will refer to you, you two, the excellent book In Plain Sight by Ross Coulthard, um, because I totally agree with what he says here. So I'm going to quote Ross's book, and I'll put a link in the episode description uh, for you to buy the book. So if you haven't bought this book, then it's totally, you know, you need to get it. As well as um, Warren Aegis. I think that's how you say his name, Warren. If you're listening, please forgive me if I've um, mispronounced your name. But Warren's book, Evidence of Extraterrestrials. These are absolute must-buy books for anybody interested in this subject. And Warren speaks about the Phoenix Lights as well, obviously, in his book. But um, what Ross says is, is really interesting. He, he covers what we've covered. Um, and he concludes, in my view, the historical evidence support... Oh, no, he's a bit more... Uh, not as rough as that, is he, Ross? He's more like... In my, in my view, the historical... <laughs> Michael it's like Michael Caine. Well, I'll just read it without the Australian accent, which I'm very good at, by the way, but I won't do it. In my view, the historical evidence supports the suggestion there has indeed been numerous U.S. government attempts to suppress and on occasion to cover up UAP incidents, especially when the witnesses were military or civilian pilots. This does not, of course, prove the existence of ETs or recovered non-terrestrial spacecraft, but the evidence is overwhelming that U.S. government agencies have gone to strenuous lengths to keep evidence of UAPs off the front page for whatever reason. The explanations offered by the U.S. military for the Phoenix sightings are risible in light of the clear evidence from an enormous number of witnesses. Flares and a mass delusion do not cut it as an explanation. I am left in no doubt that someone senior in the US military has been trying to cover up sightings. What I struggle is, is, sorry, what I struggle with is why the cover up? At one extreme, there are those who believe there has been an elaborate cover up to suppress recovered extraterrestrial technology, or alternatively, as I'm inclined to believe, maybe governments simply do not like having to admit there is a superior technology operating in their airspace displaying capabilities far beyond known human science. It is embarrassing. I couldn't agree more, Ross. That's page 119, or oh, 119, as most people say, uh, to page 120 of Ross Coulthard's book, In Plain Sight. An investigation into UFOs and impossible science. 
So, yeah, it's totally is that, isn't it? I mean, clearly this happened. The the documentary evidence for this having happened is absolutely overwhelming. You know, we've got photographs, we've got footage, we've got, uh, you know, reports, contemporaneous reports from many, many, many people. And Fife Symington and his, you know, kind of realising when he was out of power, out of the kind of thing of what do I do now? You know, he didn't want to confirm it and... I mean, the truth is, and he speaks about this in um, James Fox's brilliant film, The Phenomenon, you know, you don't have that much control, actually, as, as the governor. You know, if the US Air Force are stonewalling you and are saying, you know, don't look into this, there's not much you can do about it, unfortunately. So there we go. But Five Symington is the, uh, the, the golden bullet what do they call it? Do they call it the silver bullet? When they, what's the silver bullet? Is that the thing that kills werewolves? <laughs> what's the thing? There's a thing, isn't there? Like a metaphor to say, you know, the the bloody thing that's the most important of all the bits. It's the the uh, the lock or the X that marks the spot. You get the gist. He's the dude, basically. Old Fife. So the archive this week is uh, extraordinary. It's quite long. It's about 17 minutes long, I think, something like that. It's a conversation between Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna, and it gets quite meaty. So I hope you enjoy it. Sheldrake is talking about uh, morphic resonance, and McKenna is talking about fractals of time. It's a very interesting conversation, and a link to the video that's part of sheldrake.org is in the episode description, so enjoy this. I'm adopting a very traditional scientific position in one way by assuming that by putting forward the hypothesis in its most general possible form, um, if I said it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't, then it would be um, very difficult to test because... <laughs> um, and it would actually be irrefutable. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a vice and not a virtue in a scientific theory. And so I th I'm more inclined to think of it working, trying to think of it working everywhere. Now, there are many systems like the behavior of hydrogen atoms, the crystallization of sodium chloride, and all sorts of phenomena that physics has studied in great detail. Um, which have happened billions of times, and as far as we know, for billions of years, even before this planet formed. So, there are certain kinds of phenomena in nature which have happened so many times before, they're so deeply habitual, that they behave as if they're governed by eternal laws. The habits are so deeply entrenched. And I think many of the phenomena that scientists have studied particularly in the physical sciences, are of that kind. And therefore they do look as if they're governed by eternal laws. Where the difference shows up is when you look at any new phenomenon, because then you can see the habits building up. With old established habits, um, they might look as if they're not really habits at all, but following eternal laws. So I would say that the... I would prefer to think of the theory applying everywhere, and I would account for the apparent non-changing of many physical habits in terms of their 
extreme uh, antiquity and the fact they're so deeply embedded in grooves of habit, they don't some, change. Some things you simply won't be able to test them. Well, you can test the theory in any area where you can do something new. New forms, new crystals, new molecules, new patterns of protein folding, new ideas, new ways of learning. There seem to be plenty of areas it can be tested in. Is there anything that would hard to refute your theories, or do you, what do you consider its status? Is it just a, a good idea to do experiments? Or? It's a hypothesis. Which it, what, what a hypothesis is, is a guess yeah. about the way things may be. And what I've done is contrasted this guess in a variety of areas, the realms of memory, crystallography, morphogenesis, instinct, behavior, um, transmission of learning, um, behavior and evolution of social groups. So I looked at the predictions of this way of looking at things compared with the standard way of looking at things. And in every area one finds that there's a whole range of shadowy phenomena which, where the evidence for the conventional position is very weak indeed. And one sees that that's actually a guess too, which is in most essential areas unproved even now. So one's got one guess versus a much more common and habitual guess. And there are other guesses on the market too. Um, is there anything that would falsify the morphogenetic field in your mind? Well, a failure of experiments to show morphic resonance would falsify it, except that falsifying scientific theories is never... People often go on as if sci they say, Papa says the ideal is to falsify theories. I don't know a single example of science proceeding in that manner. Most scientists are trying to prove theories, and they may try and falsify theories of their rivals, um, which is what the way it usually happens, but um, and it's a kind of dialectic then. Science becomes the, a dialectic between rivalrous rivals, and it's, science is full of ego rivalries. Well, most people think that this is terrible vice, but actually it's one of the motors of competitive science as we know it. If somebody puts forward a theory and someone has a rival theory, and they, then there's a, the way the contest is decided is by experiment, the rules of the scientific game. Experiments are usually designed to test between rival hypotheses rather than testing a single one in isolation. And I'm putting forward a variety of tests which test between the idea that nature has this habitual tendency as against the conventional idea, which is always that nature is governed by immutable, changeless, eternal laws. And some tests may be inconclusive. Some tests may, I think, favor the idea of morphic resonance. If all the tests that are done fail it, if it fails, if it looks as if things are governed by eternal, changeless laws, that there's no evidence for any incremental change in time in any area, that everything goes on as if it were governed entirely by laws that were already there to start with, I'd find that rather surprising. Um, but failure of these experiments would actually support that view. It, and the conventional view would then, for the first time, actually have empirical evidence in its favor. Because <laughs> <So laughs> this would be the first time it's ever been challenged. And if those challenges fail, it would strengthen it. So these tests, I think, are in everybody's interest. And, uh, and, uh, but if they support the idea of morphic resonance, then indeed it would show that that is not a perfect model. It's a, maybe a the idea of a memory in nature, morphic resonance, however crude the theory is in its present preliminary form, it would be a better theory, and a theory more worth developing. And the question is, is the field connection in quantum non-locality, in Bell's theorem and the Einstein-Rosen-Podolsky paradox, that 
kind of quantum non-locality related to morphic resonance? Are they two aspects of the same phenomenon? That's the really interesting question in relation to existing physics. And nobody knows the answer. Um, I don't know how morphic resonance as conceived would fit with quantum non-locality, which although it does in fact involve a past, because both systems originate from a past, and it's to do with a system with a past, which is, I would say, the very existence of these particles is a kind of resonance from their own past. And I would say that there is a kind of morphic resonance link, and probably that's what it might be. But I can't fit that into the formalism of quantum theory, because I don't know it. I'm not a quantum theorist. And to really to work with those equations with any degree of subtlety would require a deep understanding of the subject. Um, on the other hand, J.S. Bell, the inventor of Bell's theorem, has been in correspondence with me. He's read both my books and has um, um, sent me his latest book. And so we've been in a correspondence about the possible connection between morphic resonance and his own theory. He's perfectly intrigued by morphic resonance and morphogenetic fields. He thinks they may be connected with his own theory, but he can't see how. because. There's nothing in the conventional physics which has yet proved, because it's so based on eternal equations, the idea of Schrodinger's equation is a kind of eternal platonic form that governs all quantum processes from the beginning of the universe to the end in exactly the same way. Uh, that's the kind of inherited formalism of quantum mechanics, and that kind of mathematics, which postulates eternal platonic type forms, is not going to be adequate for modeling an evolutionary universe. And so it's not clear how the bridge can be made, or even whether that connection... But I think there must be some kind of connection. There can't be lots of totally unconnected types of non-locality in the universe. Rupert, why not replace the platonic models with uh, fractal models, and then say that time itself is the morphogenetic field? that it is some kind of fractal topological manifold that and what and so the repetition or the connection to past states is really accomplished through resonance within the fractal and then we have a model for resonance because it's familiar to us from other domains of nature well i don't see quite how the there's a sense in which the fractal is a new mathematical model that gives us the same idea that the ancient idea of the microcosm mirroring the macrocosm. The idea of the different levels. Well, but not only different levels, but different points on the same level in the same way that the past occupies a relationship to the future of formative anticipation, so in a fractal do early portions of it anticipate uh, later forms. So it is like a prediction, a self-fulfilling self prediction is what a fractal is. It predicts by virtue of its past states. They define what its future states will be exactly in the same way that I imagine uh, the morphological 
epigenetic field defines what future states will be. The fractals that have been talked about to date have been uh, used to describe spatial phenomena, coastlines, molecular arrangements, uh, distribution of flowers in a meadow, this sort of thing. But if instead you thought of, of fractals as descriptors for the temporal dimension and replace the notion of a flat or slightly curved manifold with an actual uh, fractal surface over which events were flowing and flowing over patterns which repeated themselves at many many levels in resonance with previous similar patterns then you would begin to have uh, a mathematical picture of how the morphogenetic field would work and you would also have found a phenomenon in nature upon which to hang it by saying time is obviously it. It's just that we are so ingrained by Newtonianism to accept time as an abstraction, as something not having equal status with the other three dimensions, that we've overlooked this fact. And yet, obviously, that is the carrier wave. That's why you would speak of the presence of the past. What then can it be but time, past time in the present? Well, it is past time in the present. But the, the fractal wave, you see, the, why I don't like the fractal model taken to any great extreme is because any kind of mathematical modeling, given the whole kind, the whole nature of mathematics as it's practiced, fractal mathematics is conventional paradigm in the sense that you, you create an equation and you generate this form. The equation itself is not subject, the governing equation is not subject to evolution. It's generating the same form and it would go on generating the same form right into the future. In other words, it would be a kind of determinism based mm -hmm. on a kind of platonic or Pythagorean ideal form, the fractal equation which generates the fractal. And I don't understand evolution as happening like that. I don't think it's de as deterministic. Well, you're right that as they are presently understood, it would generate, however complicated, ultimately a determinism. But I wonder if we're just not mathematically sophisticated enough to inculcate into the fractal equations sufficient randomness within the fractal constraints to begin to get uh, the kind of complexity that we meet in the real world. That would seem to be what is lacking, is a, a random factor that causes the fractal equation to skew toward production of ferns and then suddenly to switch over to feathers and then to river systems and then to industrial economies or something like that. But if it can do all these things, it can model all these things, but as you say, in a deterministic way. But maybe we don't know enough about them yet and that there may be higher dimensional or higher order fractals with a degree of uh, 
of self-determinacy or autopoiesis built into them. Mm. I think this must be so because I think the world we're living in must be such a world and that we are these fractals. We are essentially, essentially three-dimensional expressions of DNA and all the DNA is the same and yet each one of us is different and yet ten of us are like any other ten and yet different and we as human beings have the same quality and so do our cities and our nation states and the continents we inhabit and the religious systems that we're inside of. So it seems to me the fractal model may be the one which holds out the greatest hope for a formalizing of the morphogenetic field. All other fields are fractals. The electromagnetic field, the radio wave, all of these things have, are found to have this quality and in fact the development of this kind of mathematics initially was in, in an effort to describe the field phenomenon, Fourier transforms and that sort of thing. So then why not this one? And then that vastly narrows down the mathematical domain in which you have to search for a formal description of the morphogenetic field. It would also yield a perfect theory of history because that would be part of the morphogenetic mm. field. Well, I suppose that one of the problems I have is that I'm not so fascinated with mathematics. I mean, I don't think that mathematics, most mathematicians, think that the maths is more real than the thing it models. That the equations of the universe are more real somehow than the universe. They were there before it, after all. They were its source. They were prior to it, <laughs> both logically and temporally. They're the more real thing. This is the Platonic tradition. Platonism. And this is alive and well. I mean, its latest, greatest exponent in the, in the bestseller lists of the last few months is Stephen Hawking, <laughs> who as as a perfect exponent, really, of that Platonic view of the eternal intellect, the eternal mathematical mind, which somehow is over and above the universe. The mathematical mind of God, in some sense, is there before and prior to matter or bodies. And as one of our British um, journals put it, to that Stephen Hawking is the closest thing we have to a disembodied mind. <laughs> And it's a perfect, you see, in a sense there's a perfect, I think the reason for his mythic quality, because he is a mythic figure, mythic power, mm -hmm. is because of that. And, and the vision is totally consistent with it. And um, so I don't really, all mathematics tends to have that quality. And I would think of the fields not as something which to grasp we have to model mathematically, but as something which I think of them as much more like living things and our models would be much more and more appropriately based on an intuitive sense, a living sense of things that we actually learn from experience as living things ourselves. So the models would be much more communicated by seeing how they correspond to our actual subjective experiences, the kind of things that we experience. So through ordinary language? Through ordinary language, through the realms of the imagination, through our understanding of memory, through the mind, through the power of hopes, fears, desires, uh, fantasies, through the experience of our consciousness as the realm of the possible. And 
So these are much the best models. And mathematics is a tiny fraction of a formalized modeling of the possible, which is constrained by very particular rules and is entirely so far in the whole history of the subject under the aegis of the Platonic spirit. So now it just leaves me to say thank you ever so much for listening to episode 28. Episode 29 is going to be coming along down the track very soon. And uh, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. Take care. See you later.